We are back. It is the 77 Minutes in Heaven podcast. The Dallas Mavericks podcast is a part of the Athletic Sports Network. Uh, We were gone for the All-Star break. I am Brian Damaris, former director of basketball development for the Dallas Mavericks. And I'm sitting across from a very tanned and rested TV play-by-play voice of the Dallas Mavericks, Mark Followell. So tanned, so rested. Had a nice all-star break vacation in uh, a couple of areas in the uh, Puerto Vallarta area of Mexico. So it was nice, and we're back. And I believe I've been to uh, the Punta Mita area, and you were near there. I was, yeah, that's exactly right. Punta Mita is part of the Riviera Nayarit area, which is north of Puerto Vallarta. And the lovely missus and I spent a few days in Bucerías, which is a town close to Punta Mita. And then we went to an area south of Puerto Vallarta called Boca de Tomatlan, which is where the movie Predator was filmed in 1987. Excellent. Yeah, how about that? Or at least in that general vicinity. Did you reenact by uh, <laughs> throwing mud on your face? No. And... Uh, I did not, but the Athletics own Bob Sturm actually asked me the, same, the very same question. <laughs> That's good. No. Now, of course, I, the difference between your vacation and mine when I went down there is I go to the Four Seasons and uh, don't leave. Right, right. And you go to the local haunts. Well, we had a good time, and the local haunts are fun. And I do know I've never been, but but the wifey has been. She says that Four Seasons that you're talking about in Punta Mita is quite amazing. But it's uh, very nice. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, but thank you for shoving your vacation in my face. <laughs> I am pale like everybody else is in February. I appreciated your Instagram comment to me that you were in Coppell. Thank you. Yes, as <laughs> you're showing off pictures from the beach. But uh, we are back, and it's basketball season again. And and it didn't take long for us to just have many talking points. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe we wouldn't have. A lot to talk about in this podcast, but it sure after just a few games, we have a lot to talk about. We're going to get into um, the last few games, what's ahead and some certain key players. But we should start with the elephant in the room, which is, of course, the last few seconds of the Hawks game and the protest that has been filed. Uh, I've done quite a bit of research. I've talked to people in the organization. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to go kind of step by step through the whole process to kind of give you the background of why we're where we're at, where we're at and what's ahead of us. Mm -hmm. Please feel free to interject and ask questions as I go along. Well, we're speaking to you on Tuesday morning after the Mavs won at home against the Minnesota Timberwolves on Monday night, which we'll get into that a little bit. Sandwiched in between uh, was the, that, that Atlanta game in between the Minnesota win and a win out of the All-Star break against Orlando. But yeah, the big talking point is Saturday night, February 22nd, 111-107, Hawks beat the Mavs, Brian. So what we should clear up is that this wasn't a coach's challenge by Carlisle. This was right. a referee review. Right. Uh, coaches can't challenge goaltending in the last two minutes. They can do it for the first 46, but mm-hmm. then it's under the purview of the refs. Yeah, instant replay sense. triggers at that point, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So it's different from what many Mavs fans may refer to, which is the third game of the season, which was the Portland game, mm-hmm. when Finney Smith was driving, fouled by Lillard. Terry Stotts challenged that, mm-hmm. um, and losing that challenge meant a jump ball at Midcourt, yeah, yeah, and the Mavs were down one at the they time. Were. Yeah, so yeah. Instead and, and, of getting two free throws with ten seconds left, mm-hmm. there was a jump ball, which they then lost and lost the game. Yeah, the Mavs lost the Terry Ter- Terry Stotts won the challenge. It got the call overturned. The Mavs lost the challenge, for lack of a better term. And the ruling then case. is yeah. when a foul is taken away, that it's an inadvertent whistle. Yep. By definition, an inadvertent whistle is a jump ball at midcourt. So that's where some of the uh, context for today's argument is happening. Right. 
So part three of context is what happened a few weeks ago with Portland again in a game against the Miami Heat where Dame Lillard. I think it was at Utah, right? Excuse me. Yeah, against Utah, Utah. Yep. Where there was a no, there was a, a goaltending that was not called. Yes. And it was an obvious missed goaltending on a shot by Lillard that Gobert got. Uh, after it hit the backboard and was on the way down. And it would have been a shot that would have had they called goaltending, it would have tied the game with 10 seconds left or something along right. those lines. And the rest came out that night and said, looking at the video, we missed it. But of course, you cannot review no calls. Correct. You can only review calls. So I think as a result of that, the refs, and this is an assumption on my part, but I, you know, considering the the feedback loop that they have, the refs then are probably told, listen, uh, if you don't know or if it looks close, make the call because then we can go review it. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a good that's a good point. Yep. Yep. So, and, 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 you know, we're seeing a lot of other similar things in sports uh, where it's it's the other way around um, in terms of, for example, in soccer and with VAR now uh, referees, assistant referees in particular, those on the sideline who handle an offside flag are basically being told now. Uh, don't blow the whistle. Don't stop the play. Let the play go on. And then we'll go back and look at it. But once you've stopped the play, then there's no real remedy if we were wrong. So it's 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 similar, except they have to do it the other way around. Exactly. Basically. We'll get to why that's important in a bit. But also in football, you see that a lot. You see a, a, a fumble. You don't know if the quarterback was arm was going forward or not. The defense runs it back all the way, and then they realize, yes, of course, his arm was going forward. But if it's blown dead, you can't look at it. Correct. So Correct. they want to be able to look at it and get the call right. Mm -hmm. So that was the impetus here. But so that so my, that was a, that's just me thinking out loud. But I think that that's kind of where the thinking was in this play because uh, if we move then to the game Saturday night with uh, nine with eight point nine seconds left. The whistle was blown and it was a goaltending was called. Yeah. So and just for background, just to for make sure everybody remembers, Atlanta's got the ball. They're up 109-107 at that point in time. The Mavericks had missed a shot to try to tie the game. Uh, and I don't even remember what the, the shot was that they had missed, but they'd missed an attempt with 31, two seconds, something like that. And so when it's Atlanta ball, they're milking the clock and, and going for uh, a shot to put themselves up by two possessions at that point. Right. So Trey Young goes up, Finney blocks it. I'm not even sure on the broadcast whether you guys considered it a goaltending in real time or not. Um, but it was it was close. It was 50-50. You don't know. Right. But the call was made mm -hmm. because not calling it and it ended up being a goaltend would have been controversy yet again. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Play was stopped Correct. and it was a referee then initiated review. When they went there, what was also then coincidentally happening was the shot clock was running down. Right. And what the and even the shot clock. So the shot clock buzzer actually goes off mm -hmm. because the operator did not see that after Finney blocked it, it did touch the rim mm -hmm. and which would have reset it, but it didn't. So they also looked at they were looking then at two things. Now, the two minute report did come out. The two minute report comes out after games where uh, it's three points or less within two minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, the two minute when, when there's a protest filed, that particular call then isn't reviewed. In the two-minute report, it Correct. is held back. Correct. Uh, I would have liked to see. So the Mavs filed their protest, I'm sure, Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll get to the protest rules in a bit. But uh, it would have been nice to see what the two-minute report said and then file your protest. Right. Okay. But that's been redacted. Yeah. Or not, even not maybe even adjudicated at this yeah. point. Uh, 
but it just just says goaltending. It doesn't have anything about the shot clock violation, but they you, can look at both. Yeah, if you ever read a, a last two minute report, basically they look at all potential plays and say correct call, incorrect call or correct no call um, in terms of they'll look at plays where there's contact, but there was no foul called and they'll confirm that, yes, that was that was a CNC. It will say on the report, correct, no call. So that's kind of how the how the last two minute reports look like and the verbiage and in that space where it would say typically CC for correct call or IC for incorrect call or CNC for correct no call. It says nothing. And then there's a lengthy explanation below that, that the play is under further review because of the uh, of the protest file. Right. And everybody can pull that up on NBA.com. Mm-hmm. So uh, the goaltend was looked at. It was determined that there was no goaltending. So by definition, it becomes an inadvertent whistle. That is the remedy for taking back a call. But you also had the shot clock violation issue in play. Right. So that was also looked at. It was also determined that there was no shot clock violation because it clearly hit the rim. Yes. Before yes. Collins touched the ball. Yeah. Finney's block shot actually ended up deflecting it off the rim. Yes. Now, Collins does touch the ball and, and the shot clock is at zero. Mm-hmm. So if it hadn't hit the rim, then it would have been Mavs ball. Yep. Now, the, the, the refs can look at both of those legally. They can't then go say, oh, well, there was a foul and we're going to call that foul. They can't do that. Correct. But they can look at those two things. Yeah. So there was nothing untowards done there. Dorian Finney-Smith involved in the other weird play, by yes. the way, that we were talking about earlier, that Portland play. So the shot clock part of it does add a wrinkle to it because mm-hmm. there's the rule states that an inadvertent whistle is an immediate suspension of play. But the shot clock going off and an inadvertent whistle puts in another rule. And Saad Youssef wrote about this in his article in The Athletic, and I encourage our listeners to go there, that if there's a simultaneous whistle and shot clock buzzer Mm -hmm. and the ball's in the air, meaning the shot's been taken, Mm -hmm. then you play out the shot. Right. If the shot goes in, it counts. If it hits the rim, there's no violation. If it doesn't hit the rim, there is a violation. Correct. So within that context... The ref decided, and he says in, in the report, in the in the one comment we've heard, yeah, because a pool reporter, a pool right. reporter in Atlanta, uh, which is this is not this is typical protocol. Whenever there's a controversial decision that needs referee explanation, there's a pool reporter for every game, and it's usually like a local Associated Press reporter or something along those lines who's assigned to be the one reporter who gets to go ask a question for the referees, and then that answer is is disseminated to everyone through what the pool reporter gets from a quote. So what the pool reporter said was, we looked at the goaltending. There was none. It's an inadvertent whistle. Uh, I hit the rim. Therefore, there's no shot clock violation. So then it was inadvertent whistle continuation. We scored the bucket. And that's where everybody, that's where the uproar happened. Because no one's really heard of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I spent way too much time kind of researching this. Yeah. Which I'm Uh, very impressed by, by the way. But there is precedent for... Inadvertent, inadvertent whistle continuation, although it's not in the rule book because of the clunky way that these reviews and challenges occur. There is no remedy for a bad call with a whistle other than calling it an inadvertent whistle, because right. like you were saying in soccer, you know, a flag is raised when they see a foul, but they let the play play out. Mm-hmm. And if there is no foul, then however the play yeah. ended up, they keep it. Yeah. And a lot of times a flag is raised specifically for more offside, more more that. Right. But but uh, a violation or, uh, you know, something that would normally lead to suspension of play. 
in an NFL, a flag is thrown, but the play continues. Mm -hmm. They can pick up the flag. Right. In the NBA, when there's a foul, it's immediately whistled and play is stopped. Mm -hmm. So to remedy that, you say, well, whoops, inadvertent whistle, (laughs) jump ball. Correct. Well, just two weeks ago, as I was looking at some challenge calls in a Charlotte, Minnesota game when uh, um, D'Angelo Russell had just gotten there, I guess, yeah, Charlotte, Minnesota. Um, there was there was a play where um, I can't even remember who the guy was for uh, Charlotte scores into layup, mm-hmm. fouled by D'Angelo Russell. Right. Minnesota challenges the foul call. Okay. It was an and one. Okay. So the bucket was made. Okay. The challenge was overturned. Okay. So there was no foul shot, but the bucket counted. Okay. So it was a continuation bucket. Right. You don't take away the layup right. and the score. Right. Because then anytime there's an and one, a coach would challenge it to take away all three potential points. Sure. Sure. Understood. So just so just for clarification, a Charlotte player scored at the live play call was whistle on D'Angelo Russell for an and one foul right. for an opportunity for a three point play. And then Ryan Saunders from Minnesota challenged the play. And upon review, which this is how they can review it, the foul was taken away. But the bucket was not. So inadvertent whistle continuation. Right. Not inadvertent whistle tip. Right. Not, court. Yeah. Not inadvertent whistle jump ball at center court. Inadvertent so, whistle. Bucket counts for Charlotte. Minnesota puts the ball in bounds, put, brings the ball in from out of bounds like they would after any other made basket. Right. And so that is inadvertent whistle continuation. Now, you say, well, how does that apply to what John Collins did? Well, there's also the weird rules of gathering and continuation a with the shot clock going down. And just in general, that if think about it, if I'm, you know, passing a lob to maxi and he grabs it and then dunks it, mm-hmm. if he's fouled in the process of that gather, mm-hmm. which is literally just touching it. Yeah. The ball hitting his hand, then he gets continuation on that. Mm-hmm. Well, the ball touching Colin's hand where he was, mm-hmm. that's considered gathering and the beginning of continuation. Okay. So he then is allowed to finish that action and that's the continuation. So that's the inadvertent whistle continuation. Okay. All right. Well, it does what you're saying basically all makes sense to this point. So unfortunately, so from where I've kind of gotten to this point, it looks like the rules were actually applied correctly. Now the issue of course is was Collins touching the ball when the whistle blew Mm -hmm. and which I feel like that, that is a big part of the Mavericks argument, which is the whistle blew. Everybody stopped playing. Collins touched the ball after the whistle. So, no, your your call, Rodney Mott, is wrong. He did not have the ball after you did not. And this is what we heard in our ears, basically, from our truck, who is in communication with the replay center, which was that John Collins had the ball and was already shooting by the time the referees had blown their whistle to stop play for the goaltend call that they made initially. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a key point in this mm-hmm. is if that is the case, then it looks like as complex. And that's why I walked through everything that that they got it right. And that's why it took long. And I think even on the broadcast, you're like, why is this taking so long? Right. So but as I zapruded the the 
video myself, and I know mm-hmm. the Mavs have done this, and this is a part of their protest. You mm-hmm. know, they're sending this to the league. Right. Uh, if you go frame by frame, and frames are milliseconds. Yeah. Because I posted this on my Twitter, and you can look at. I posted the exact. I posted a screenshot of the exact moment the whistle goes off. Now you can't hear it in a screenshot, obviously, but that's the moment. It's nine point six on the clock and point one on the shot clock. Okay. And the shot clock of the scoreboard, not the graphic. Gotcha. Because sometimes there can be a delay. Gotcha. And if you go frame by frame in the video that I post, you will clearly hear, and it takes tapping of the space bar very rapidly, but if you go to point two on the shot clock, you can hear the whistle complete before Collins touches the ball. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that then means that he did not have the ball. It was The ball was not in possession. Right. And that means that it is a jump ball in midcourt. Yeah, it's an inadvertent whistle jump ball. So... By milliseconds, technically, that is correct. Now, I think there's probably a psychological aspect to what the rest were thinking that they said, well, if we hadn't made that call, it would have just been a put in by Collins. Mm-hmm. So why are we going to penalize Atlanta for our mistake? I, I, I just think that plays in somehow. Sure. OK. And the fact that the whistle blew. Listen, the whistle blew when Collins was an inch away from the ball. I don't know that any Mav would have been able to. You know, I don't know that a Mav was stopping play and that would have affected what happened. Gotcha. Gotcha. In my opinion. Okay. Which I, I know that's that I know that's part theory. of their I know, yeah, that's part of their aspect of the protest of it. But but yeah, you you bring up a good point. So how does this all relate to how this is gonna play out? Mm-hmm. Uh if you remember the last time a protest has been uh, accepted, there was one filed a few months ago by the Rockets when James Harden went for a dunk. It went through the hoop, but then it kind of wrapped around after going through it, wrapped around and the ref said it never went fully through, even though it did. Mm -hmm. Uh, They refused to review it. And I think they even said that the challenge was after 30 seconds, even though D'Antoni was not advised at what the issue was to even challenge within (laughs) 30 seconds. It was very frustrating. But there was also eight plus minutes left in the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the league said, yes, we got it wrong, but you had plenty of time to try and win the game. Right. So they didn't misapply the rule. They just missed it. Right. They just missed a call. Uh, the last time one was accepted was 2007 in a Miami Atlanta game in Atlanta, uh, where there were 51.9 seconds left in regulation and Shaq fouled out, but he actually only had five fouls. Mm -hmm. He was misfouled out. Yeah. There was uh, some sort of problem with the official scores table. Now that is just a flat error. Mm hmm. And a misapplication of the foul out rule. Mm-hmm. So they replayed that. Now, ironically, in the meantime, they, they waited until Miami traveled back to Atlanta. Shaq had been traded to Phoenix. Right. And right. so he wasn't even in the game the second time they played. <laughs> and I think Miami ended up tying it at the end of regulation and winning it in overtime. Right. Which the, and the when the game was initially played, obviously, Atlanta had won the game. And then Miami filed a protest and then ended up winning the game because of uh, how things went on the replay from the last 51.9 seconds of regulation and then in overtime. So you see in these two-minute reports, and you see all the time where the, the, the league will say, yeah, we got that wrong. Mm-hmm. The rules applied well. We, we went into it, but we just missed it. Mm-hmm. And that happens all the time. And games aren't protested or redone or anything like that. So my concern for Mavs fans who think their protest has a chance is that it looks like the rules were applied correctly, but they missed the fact. And listen, it takes millisecond frame by frame to see that Collins did not have possession of the ball. Right. 
that, in fact, he didn't, I think the league's just going to say, listen, you're right, but you know, we missed it. But in the circumstances, we did the best we could to get it right. Does yeah. that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Just to recap, you know, they, they, they got it right in terms of the reversal of the goaltend that they had called. Um, there was no shot clock violation. So that part of it is right. And so what they basically ruled on the floor and at the time said, well, the continuation is that by the time we blew the whistle for the goaltend that we ended up reviewing and got wrong. But when we blew the whistle, John Collins had already started to shoot the ball, Gather had gathered the ball for the putback. And so therefore our goaltending call was wrong. But because by the time we blew the whistle, this putback attempt had already started. We are counting the putback attempt. And they'll basically say our estimation that the putback attempt had started by the time we blew the whistle was wrong, but we didn't misapply the rule. We just made an, an er- error in judgment and we make errors in judgment and we don't replay games. because It's of just like an out of bounds play that may later after yeah. detailed review show that they got it wrong. Well, yeah. They got it wrong. Yeah. It, just like the uh, and I know this is so frustrating, just like the. Uh, Foul that wasn't called at the end of the Laker game on November the 1st. Remember, Dallas was up by three. Seth Curry got held by Dwight Howard on a screen. Couldn't get to Danny Green. Danny Green hit a wide open three from the corner. As the buzzer was sounding, that forced overtime. The Lakers won the game. The two minute, the last two-minute report came out. We missed the call, but there's nothing that we can do about it. Right. You know, And that's, uh, look, that's very agitating. And... Uh, I do appreciate the league's attempt at transparency and saying, you know, look, this is why we do these last two minute reports. And, you know, we we want to address and let everybody know, you know, when we did make a mistake, uh, the the thing about it becomes is I think that for broadcasters and I know more importantly, there are players and coaches in the league who are tired of the last two minute report. And basically it's like, what good does this do to tell us that you are wrong about something that we thought you were wrong about to begin with? But there's no remedy for fixing the fact that we lost a game. And it just it, it ends up being more agitating than whatever benefit you feel like that you're getting out of the transparency of letting people know. Uh, I don't know what the solution for that is, because I do like on one hand that we know that mistakes are made. But I think what gets under the, the skin of a lot of people and players and coaches, and I hear this from fans all the time, it's like, well, what's what's the punishment for these guys for missing calls? Now, what happens? We know that if you make a lot of mistakes as a player, uh, you end up not starting or not being on the team anymore. I mean, there's a remedy for what happens whenever you're a player or a coach and you make mistakes and those mistakes are seen. And there is no real knowledge of what happens when a referee makes potentially an egregious call that costs a team at the end of the game. Well, what happens to this guy? And, I, you know, I understand that there's, uh, you know, some level of privacy, of course. We know we don't know everything that happens at everybody's job. But I know that that is a source of contention for a lot of people that these mistakes are made. But then, you know, does everything just move on and there's no punishment for these sorts of mistakes? Yeah, so, they're doing half the job. They're telling us what's wrong. They're not telling us how they're improving. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How they're how they're improving would probably be a better thing. I think, you know, our natural inclination as people is we want, uh, you know, we want the guy's head on a platter or something like sure. that for screwing up a call that uh, we don't see cost our grades. teams. And of course, there's collective yeah. bargaining and all that, that that gets involved there. But as you mentioned, the two minute report, I think, and that's why I mentioned the the Lillard uh, goaltending call earlier against Utah, is that I think that an unintended unintended consequence of that is that you're seeing whistles blow on 50-50 calls because they know they can go look at it. Right, right. Instead of just missing it and throwing their hands up and saying can't do anything like the Laker no call 
mm-hmm. against Dwight Howard. Blair. In the past, just to, to support your theory a little bit in the past, now the replay rules have changed on this particular type of play, but for a while, referees were calling flagrant one fouls on the floor quite often because that was the trigger that they could use to go review. And then they could downgrade it to a common foul if they wanted to, but there were often times that when in doubt, well, I'm not sure about that. Let's call it a flagrant because that's a replay trigger we can, where we can go and review. The rule is no longer the case, and this made sense to change it. It was kind of silly that the rule was the way that it was. Now, if you see a, a play happen and you call a foul and you sit there and think about it for a second after you saw what happened, then you can go review it. There's no trigger of it has to be called a flagrant to go reviewed. Now, any common foul can be reviewed. Yeah, any question about it, you can call it a common foul and say, you know what, I want to go over and look at it and see if this actually should be a more significant foul, a flagrant one, or even in some cases a flagrant two. By the way, one of the things that happened but in the Atlanta game, I even tweeted about this Sunday morning whenever someone asked online about are, what are you uh, what are you waiting for in terms of the last two minute report? I said, well, I want to see a first two minute report because I don't understand how a play that dislocated a guy's shoulder 10 seconds into the game and was called a common foul on the floor was never even looked at. And we all have differences of opinion on these things. But I still think that it's maddening that the play wasn't even looked at. And when I'm talking about the Dwayne Dedman foul on Jalen Brunson, Brian, that put him down separate. Uh, separated his shoulder, dislocated his shoulder, and it's going to cost him a minimum of five games. And, you know, I've gone back and looked at it. I've kind of zapruded it in the way you did the end of the game and thought that, you know, he hit the guy in the stomach. Deadman fouled a small player who had gone up airborne and was in basically a defenseless position. And to me, it meets all the criteria for a flagrant foul. Um, you know, we can have a difference of opinion on that, but the fact it wasn't even reviewed is is I think it's crazy. That, it's crazy that it wasn't reviewed. It's yeah. cl- he's clearly elbowing him in the side while he's in the air. I, yeah. I don't know why you would resist going to look at it. Yeah, that just, just doesn't make sense. And, all, and, and part of what the Mavs are also going to say is that, you know, when Maxi fouled out, there was a clear kick by DeLon Wright of the ball uh, before that, which should have stopped play, which would have prevented, you know, uh, sliding doors wise Maxi's foul. But that's, you know, those kind of things happen all the time. A couple of quick notes to wrap up this inadvertent whistle and this whole thing. Uh, there was a play recently where Dwight Howard uh, blocked a shot. It was called a goal 10. The goal 10 was taken away. The opposing team had caught the ball very clearly in rebound with no one around him. That was then tipped at midcourt. And a lot of people are looking at that and saying, well, why isn't that similar? But mm-hmm. of course, the difference is there was no shot opportunity there. That was just Correct. a catch yeah. on the rebound. Correct. And a defensive rebound 90 feet away from your basket. Right. Um, you know, it's the inadvertent kind of whistle this 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 being the only remedy for a a, a call that is reversed. People for many years have thought inadvertent whistle and it's in the rule book is suspension of play. Mm-hmm. And that's what you saw Carlisle's comments after that's when the play stops. Mm-hmm. But there are these caveats that we've talked about where continuation is involved. Be- just like the example I gave you with the D'Angelo Russell committing the foul in the Charlotte, Minnesota game, right? There was continuation, it, you know, the play stopped, but the basket happened after the whistle when it went back, it was called an inadvertent whistle, but you still counted that basket. Right. It play just didn't stop at the whistle. Mm-hmm. We're used to years and years and years before replay that an inadvertent whistle is immediate stoppage of, of play. And so it, they may even need a second definition or something there mm-hmm. to, to, forward. to change those. I think that's where the confusion, because historically, yes, when you hear a whistle, that stops. 
Well, your research is uh, A plus plus. I would give you a grade for uh, on this entire thing. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that it looks to me like based on what you're saying. And to be honest with you, I mean, I always felt like there was a one percent chance that anything would actually come of this. Uh, when we talked about it a little bit after the game on Monday night, and some of the first things that you were telling me, I actually upped my percentage chance to about 5%. But since then, you've done further research on like, for example, you found that D'Angelo Russell example. Uh, yes, I was, continuation. I was a little uh, concerned about this inadvertent continuation idea, but it, you know, it, it does. There, seem is pres- to, there is precedent for it. Yeah. The N one is a perfect example of how you just kind of have to have that in mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And especially when you're talking about alley-oops or putbacks where gathering is considered just touching the ball and that's the beginning of continuation. So it sounds like that a a positive remedy for the Mavs here that would result in going back to Atlanta, starting play with nine point whatever seconds left with a jump ball at center court and down by two and then doing all the things that you would need to do to pull off a win in that game. It sounds like that's uh, something that's not going to happen. And it's important to note that people who think, well, Luca and KP can play in that game. They can't because they they were inactive. Yep. Yep. There were only 11 players on the roster. Now Brunson could play mm-hmm. because he, you know, he got hurt, but if he's healthy at that point now, timetable wise teams have 48 hours to file a protest. The maps have done so. Uh, then both teams have five days to submit their evidence. Okay. So that I, I, I don't know where that is in the process, but that is in the process. Okay. And then once that five days is up, uh, so the, the 48 hours start was non-factor because it was filed Sunday. Right. <laughs> now, I don't know whether it's a business day, Monday or what have you. Yeah. So we're on the five day evidence gathering block. Mm-hmm. And then Adam's, we're, we're in discovery right now. <laughs> and then Adam Silver has five days to render judgment. So basically nine days from now or so we will have our at most. And mm-hmm. that's the max limit of when our decision will come down. Yeah. Probably by the next time you and I do a podcast, which will be after the Mavericks home game against New Orleans on March the 4th, then, yeah, I would say we, we should know something by then. So that's not the most exhaustive rundown of man goaltending gate. Then I don't know what to give you. Well, I'm for real, man. I think your uh, your research and your delving into the rule book and slowing down the stuff frame by frame is uh, that's incredible stuff. Bottom line is it looks like it was. It won't be overturned because of the way it was applied, but it was a miscall. It was a miscall yeah. because he wasn't touching. It was a misjudgment call, but it wasn't a misapplication of the rules, which is uh, you know something that's happened to the Mavs a few times this year, unfortunately. So let's get on and happens to, to and happens to other teams as well. Sorry, let's get on to. Uh, some other news and notes from the last three games. Yes. Well, uh, let's go back just a little bit more real quickly. Uh, the Mavs did come out of the break. I thought uh, played very, very well against Orlando on Friday night. Uh, that first game out of a break after a nine-day layoff, as you know, uh, and I asked Rick before the game that night, and he said these games can be very unpredictable. But I, I was uh, as impressed as I've been in recent memory of any Mavs game after an All-Star break with how well and how crisp and how sharp they looked for a team coming off a nine-day layoff. They looked fresh. They looked sharp they looked engaged just everything looked fantastic about their game Luca was very good that night with 33 points that was also the night that Maxi Kleba had a career high 26 and that Kristaps Porzingis in that game Brian did something that Dirk is the only other Maverick to do which is have at least 20 points 10 rebounds five assists and five blocks in a game that particular night Porzingis had 24 points 10 boards five 
dimes, five blocks, and uh, an incredible performance, great game, and one of many that he's been playing lately. So that was a really good win to get things off on the right foot to start post-All-Star break play. Unfortunately, you gave up that ground with what happened against Atlanta on Saturday night. Yes, and Maxie did have a great game, and I would encourage everybody to go to the Fox Sports Southwest Twitter feed and listen to the minute-and-a-half clip of of Maxie mic'd up from the uh, game Monday night. Against Minnesota. Because you really get, especially when he's on defense, you can see, and he's been a, he's a great defender, and part of it is because he communicates so well to the guards in front of him. Mm-hmm. And, and it's so important for them to know you know, what he's seeing and when to switch and, you know, if another pick is coming and all of that. And we don't hear that when we're sitting in the stands or watching on TV, but it's really good, you know, kind of inside look at, you know, a lot of those mic'd ups that you see nationally are, Mm -hmm. hey, great, good job. And and, and there's some of that too, but, but really getting that on court, you know, uh, defensive look at what it's really like when you're in the the rush of a possession, I think is, is fascinating. And, and, and so he's really underrated in what he's giving on, on the defensive side. With all due respect to other people that we've done mic'd up things with in the past. And, and look, we've done a lot of things that I've been very, very happy with in the past. This was the best we've ever had and the best we've ever done in terms of having somebody with the Mavericks mic'd up and what we got out of it. I mean, it yeah. was incredible. The stuff that, especially the stuff that you talked about on the floor and his defensive awareness and communication was really, really unique and insightful. And I hope that uh, our viewers appreciated it. And those that didn't see it, like you said, go to the Fox Sports Southwest Twitter feed. And, you know, I love Maxie. He's a friend of mine. And I, I'm going to give him a hard time that he was probably playing to the mics and maybe doesn't <laughs> do that any other time. But I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that that's how he is on uh, most possessions. People don't know. And, and hopefully some of that came out that he's he's got a great self deprecating sense of humor yep. and and that's really great for the locker room and kind of the whole vibe of the he's thing. and he's also a very very supportive teammate as well look the guy's a good teammate uh he's funny he does have a self-deprecating sense of humor but he also had another really cool sense of humor moment last night which was a case where there was a player on offense for the mavericks i believe it was tim hardaway jr who missed a shot dorian came in and went for a violent putback dunk that bounced off the rim and flew right out to seth curry who hit a three-pointer and when the play happened, Maxi Kleba yelled, nice pass, Dodo. So it was like, you know, it was the dynamic of the uh, I'm being supportive, but I'm also goofing on my own teammate here a little bit and having which, a little bit which, of fun. For those who saw the clip where uh, Dirk was on the sideline sitting with Mark and Luca had a great game and, and Dirk said, happy birthday. If people don't know, the reason happy birthday is said is because it's like, well, you played such a great game. It must be your birthday that because it's similar to that. It only happens once a year. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why you see that. So it's that same kind of congrats jab. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you mentioned, you know, the one loss to Atlanta uh, where Luca and KP weren't in that game. Yep. So the two games that they've had them, they've been blowout wins. Didn't have him in that one. I think a lot of people were surprised Luca didn't play in that game. Uh, I think for the foreseeable future, we probably won't see KP in back-to-backs, although there are only three back-to-backs re- left, and one yeah. of them's coming up this weekend. Yeah, one of them's coming up a week from for a week from now. Mavs will play. And Rick was quick to point this out, by the way, Saturday night, when he continued to reiterate that Porzingis' back-to-backs will be judged on a case-by-case basis. And he said, for example, the next one we have, I believe, is an afternoon game on Sunday and then a night game on Monday. And that is, they play in Minnesota Sunday afternoon and at Chicago on Monday night. So he said that might be different. But they'll be on a case-to-case basis. They've got one on the first two days of March. 
March. They've got another one where they play at San Antonio and then a home game with Denver on the 10th and 11th of March. And the last back-to-back, the 13th and final back-to-back of the year will be at Clippers at Kings, 16th and 17th of March. And then back-to-backs are finished for the and year. And just so our listeners know, he does not have the schedule in front of him. That's crazy <laughs> mind to follow. Right? It is crazy. Curse and a blessing. But uh, Luca, I think, was more just abundance of caution after the layoff. He's obviously had the same injury, uh, you know, twice. Uh, he did tweak it again early in the game, Monday night against Minnesota. Uh, I would be surprised if he's out any games coming up or even that back-to-back that you mentioned because it's a day-night back-to-back. But I wouldn't worry that he was out of that Atlanta game. Yeah, other than Rick did say before the game, I mean, Rick's concern seemed very genuine that he said, you know, when he was asked about it, and he said, the guy's got a sore ankle. You know, I mean, and I know that Luca told Brad uh, told uh, uh, Brad Townsend during the All-Star break, he mentioned that the ankle is still bothering him as well. So, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see what it turns out into moving forward. Um, let's talk a little J.J. Barea because mm-hmm. he, he talk about the milestone that he hit um, on Monday night's game. He passed Michael Finley for fifth in Mavs history in games played. Everybody obviously knows Dirk is number one with 1,522 games. And then uh, after that, Brad Davis is second. Derek Harper's third. Rolando Blackman is fourth. Those guys are all bunched together. I think like one is 883, one is 875, and one is 862. And then you got JJ at 627 games played. So he moves past Michael Finley. And we have a guy who was an undrafted free agent out of Northeastern University, NBA champion, made the team as an undrafted free agent in 2006, now fifth in the 40-year history of Mavericks basketball and, and games played. And I think that's just uh, an amazing personal accomplishment. Uh, you know, and obviously it's a team game, but uh, when you have stayed in the league and done that and are such a significant fabric of the franchise and part of the team's history and fan favorite, and everybody loves JJ now, and you helped win a championship and you are a major contributor to that. I think it's just, uh, you know, not that it's the end of the story by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a really neat late career milestone that puts uh, the JJ Berea story in great perspective, in my opinion. Yeah, I think he and Tyson were the two names that you heard over and over when the 11 team wasn't kept together that, that fans regretted. Yep. He signed a four-year, $16 million deal with Minnesota, uh, spent three years there, and then uh, the Mavs reacquired him. I think, as you were saying uh, last night on our postgame show, that I believe Minnesota actually released him. They did. Yeah, they decided they were going in a different direction going into the last year of his contract. Uh, And so he spent all of his career, except for those three years as a Mav. Uh, Actually, if he had played all 821, he would still be in fifth place. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, But after the injury to his Achilles, which... I think it was about a year ago this time. Uh, yeah, uh, January the 11th, 2019, in Minnesota, as a matter of fact. Okay. Um, you know, Mark has said publicly since then he's a Mav for as long as he wants to be. And, and I'm not saying just in a player capacity, but uh, he'll be an assistant coach here. Mm-hmm. He will be part of the organization as long as he desires to be here. Right. And I think he like loves it here and wants to. And, and, and his relationship with Luca, I don't think should be understated in terms of a mentor, you know, friendship, but mm-hmm. learning that point guard position and just, you know, they both speak Spanish fluently and, and just that, that, that is a key relationship as well. And, and, and someone who, you know, uh, he's such a great guy. I, I've known JJ. I met JJ in 2002, my first project with the Mavs when I was hired in July of 2002 was the global games, which mm-hmm. was our under 21 international basketball tournament. And the Puerto Rican under 21 team came right. 
which was something that uh, the Mavs were helping to do then for the Dallas 2012 campaign. Right. We were putting on an international basketball tournament to show whenever the Mavs were bidding for the 2012 Olympics that, hey, we can do this. And so that was uh, that was kind of the whole genesis of that uh, that tournament that lasted, I think, three years, maybe four years here Chris in the Bosch early 2000s. Played in that and, yeah. and, uh, Darren and Williams played in it. Darko Milicic, yep. uh, Boozer, or some others. Uh, Yao Ming came through. So, uh, but... I remember I was keeping stats, but I also had to drive a van <laughs> of Puerto Ricans from SMU to the hotel. And they would demand that I play their music really loud. You were having to play Daddy Yankee back then, huh? Whatever it was. <laughs> they were absolutely crazy. And I remember JJ as a 19-year-old. You could see the potential. And I think, frankly, that's where Donnie probably first discovered him. Mm-hmm. And we kept an eye on him through college and throughout the process. But he was, I mean, he and his coach would go at it in Spanish. So I don't know what they were saying, but they would argue tooth and nail. But he was really good and really feisty. Yep. And I just, you know, from then on, you know, we've we've had a relationship and kept up. And I'm so glad that that his career has turned out the way it is. Funny story about that is that we did some of those games, not that first year, but a couple of years later, we did games on HDNet, which remember the, the the television network that Mark Cuban started and eventually became Axis. And and now I think he, he doesn't have much of any sort he of a stake it, in it anymore. Yep. Um, but we would do games because, you know, they were looking for, for programming. And so we would do that tournament in the summer as part of helping promote it and, because HDNet needed programming. And so Bob Ortigal and I did some of those games where JJ was playing for Puerto Rico and it's like, man, this team, you know, they get down big in a game and then they come back and they respond to this Berea guy who's just so feisty out there. And he's a very good basketball player, but they respond to the way he plays. Not only does he make things happen in terms of scoring, but he just plays with a certain edge and energy that brings out edge and energy in his other teammates as well. So that was, uh, you know, that is funny that we both have that experience with JJ. And he had a great college career at Northeastern and was part of like a three or four player battle for the last spot on the team in that training camp in 2006. I believe that Matt Carroll's brother, Pat Carroll, was one of the other undrafted free agents. that Cooper was, Carroll? Yeah. <laughs> no, for real, Pat Carroll was a guy that was here. And J.J., and I think that um, that particular year, the Mavs were maybe giving a chance to uh, Indy Eby, who was a high school player that Minnesota had drafted a few years before a kid out of Houston. And and he had washed out after two years and barely playing in Minnesota. And they were giving him a look. And basically they had three or four guys and we're going to look for these guys to be the 15th guy. And, uh, you know, rosters and opportunities for guys at the end are a lot different now than they were then. I mean, you were really just the fringest of fringe NBA players in 2006. If you were the 15th guy on the roster. Yeah, there was no, there was, but it wasn't used anywhere near the way it was now. But if you'll recall, JJ did go down for a handful of games that year when the Mavs G league team was the old Fort Worth flyers. And he went and scored like he spent two games there and scored 41 and 43 points. It's like, okay, come on back. (laughs) I don't even remember that. That's amazing. You've proven that you're, (laughs) that you can barbecue guys at that level. And then, you know, it took two years, but, but uh, he did play a little bit for Avery in those first two years, but not really many meaningful minutes. But when Rick got here, 
uh, about three, four weeks into Rick's first year after J.J. had been sort of a fringe rotation guy. He really sort of got established as the backup point guard, and that led to the role that he had uh, in his first time with the Mavericks that ultimately ended up in the championship and starting quite often and closing games a lot and having a... Inserted as a starter in game three of the finals. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Turned around that whole lineup. Funny story that I didn't even know till this summer. Uh, We all call him J.J., so his name is Jose Juan. Right. And he went by Jose Juan until he got to the Mavericks. And Avery said, well, I'm going to call you J.J. And that's where it and all started. Wow. All started. I didn't know that. Yeah. I thought that, uh, yeah, I thought he was maybe J.J. from just his college, no, but he's called him that. Because so. I've been to Puerto Rico for his golf tournaments, for his foundation uh, several times. And all his friends, it's all Jose Juan, Jose Juan, Jose Juan. Well, he's a wonderful guy and it's an amazing career. And, you know, I think you and I, obviously, from our relationship with him before he ever got to the Mavs, do feel a special bond. And, you know, it's, like, it's not like we're t- taking credit for discovering the guy or anything like that. But it is cool when you know someone before. Before they made it, for lack of a better term, and then you see how they've made it and the person that they are and the things that they do in the community and the career that they've had. And again, I don't want to speak like it's it's not in the past tense by any stretch of the imagination, but this is a really good towards the end of your career kind of accomplishment yes. for JJ. Well, I did work in the front office then, so I will take credit, even though it was <laughs> um, Let's quickly go to the week ahead. Yeah, yeah, because we're uh, we're 40 minutes in, 44 minutes in. So thanks for everybody who's listened today, and we we certainly appreciate that. The week ahead is a four-game road trip. Uh, the One of two four-game road trips the Mavs are going to have now, basically, in the next three weeks or next four weeks, Brian. Uh, at San Antonio on Wednesday night, at Miami on Friday, and then that back-to-back we've already mentioned where they're going to play in Minnesota Sunday afternoon the struggling Timberwolves who the Mavs did beat 139-123 on Monday night um, you know, very good performance. Not much else to say about it. I mean, it was a uh, Timberwolves have lost 18 of 19. Yeah, that's night. that's the main thing to say about it. And they're playing without Carl Anthony Towns right now. So the Mavs are going to turn around and see those guys again this upcoming weekend. And this road trip will finish with a game at Chicago on Monday night. Obviously, the first two games of the road trip are kind of what we might want to zero in on here a little bit. San Antonio, Brian, on Wednesday night is coming off their rodeo road trip, a time that in the past often was a galvanizing moment for the team where they really started their push for the playoffs and started to play their best basketball in anticipation of many of the long playoff runs of course it's a long road trip because the rodeo takes over their arena during that time thank you sometimes i speak about that like everybody knows what it is but but yeah the the rodeo takes over their arena and every february they always end up going on about a three-week road trip uh this one broken up by the all-star break but they still had an eight-game trip and the trip that many many years in the past was that galvanizing moment for them has not been so in recent memory going i believe one and six or one and seven last year and as it relates to this year's team two and six was their performance on a very difficult trip which included losses to the lakers clippers blazers kings nuggets then a win at oklahoma city all-star break, win at Utah, and then a loss at Oklahoma City again to finish up that rodeo road trip with a 2-6 and six record this past Sunday night. So their first game at home since the trip will be against the Mavs on Wednesday night. And Dallas has already beaten San Antonio twice in home games this year. And Miami has the third best home record yeah. in the league. Philadelphia's be best, Milwaukee's second best, and at 23-3, and three, Miami's third best home team in the league. And they'll be playing that on Luca's birthday, which I'm sure afterwards uh, the team is staying in Miami, and I'm sure there will be a, a light wine and cheese uh, 
you know, spread in the lobby. And that'll be about all the festivities. <laughs> Vegetable crudite tray. For Lucas 21st, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Let's just go with that. Yeah, there'll be some cauliflower that you can dip in some uh, some ranch dressing if you want. Right. Some carrot sticks. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Really nice spread. Maybe some Scrabble and <laughs> Twister, but that's about it. Probably so. Well, we went long uh, today because we didn't have one last week because uh, Mark wanted to uh, lay on the beach. But I do want to give my 30-second review of the All-Star game. Um, D-Wade screwed up the dunk contest. Uh, OT should be first team to 10. And I am disappointed Luca didn't play in the fourth. I understand that the veterans get there, but I would have thought the starters would have gotten at least started the fourth a little bit. But of course, on the other side, Trey Young didn't do it either. But it disappointed me. I would have liked to have seen him at in that more competitive environment. But the Elam ending was really cool. Yes. And I didn't watch it live. Uh, I did find a sports bar in Bucerias, Mexico, and the wifey and I uh, watched some of it because I wanted to see Luca in his first All-Star game. But uh, we were ready to, to, to move on at the middle part of the third quarter when Luca made his two threes. And I didn't watch the fourth quarter live, but I saw all the Twitter response to it and it was phenomenal. Sounds like it was, uh, you know, the best thing that has happened as it relates to the NBA All-Star game in years. Yes, and I think they're already uh, most likely going to to keep that same uh, concept. Same concept. So that is it for this week. We will drop another one uh, Tuesday of next week as well. Yep. And Wednesday after Wednesday's home game next week, when sorry. the when the Mavs play the New Orleans Pelicans in what could be Zion's first and only visit of his rookie season here. All right. So that is Mark Followell. I am Brian Damaris. That is seventy seven minutes in heaven. And uh, give us your comments, feedback, like us, do all that great stuff. Thanks a lot. <laughs>